You are listening to Demise of the Podcast with Patrick Attaway, my podcast where I discuss writing, specifically today Percival Everett's writing as we start a series on his novel Suter. This is actually his debut novel. And from what I understand, he wrote it while he was in college. I could be wrong about that, but it's actually very well written. And it's a fairly short novel, so I don't know that it'll take three episodes, but I'm kind of anticipating it taking a a minute. And I need to cover as much as I can on here because I'm technically rereading it for my class that I'm teaching this semester. And I need to come up with, you know, kind of fresh ideas for how to teach it. And I'm going to be teaching it over the course of two weeks, I believe. So my students are going to have to read half for one week and the other half for the next week. So how's everyone doing out there? Last episode, I read Zev Good's essay from Substack, and I talked to him privately via DMs. And I'd like to read more of his Substacks on here can't do that this episode just because I have to reserve all the available time that we have for Suter after I'm done talking about random stuff. So I have a new short story coming out for week seven out of the 10. It is called Dry You Out. It'll be available on Monday, Labor Day. If you haven't read the other short stories, you can listen to me read them on several episodes of this podcast. The last one to be released was going down on one knee which has not sold well at all and by that i think it sold maybe one or two copies but such is the life of a self-published author trying to sell short stories on 99 cents on amazon for 99 cents this is why i don't sell any copies because i can't speak but other than that dry you out is a short story about a man who has a self-destructive alcoholic father and he lost his mother years ago so his father is literally all he has so he decides to save him from himself in a very drastic way so you need to go download that book it's available for pre-order the other short stories are available for pre-order as well uh welcome to purgatory uh let's see what uh tattle which I read on here, so you can go check that out on here on the podcast, and you can also find uh, Foley, which I think I will cover on the podcast because I had a lot of fun writing that, and I I wrote it the same night. I started it the same night, I think, as I watched The Black Phone in the theater, so it is sort of in response to that. Otherwise, if you would like to support me in the podcast without having to read books because you're illiterate, you can go listen to my music on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you stream music. A lot of people are streaming it on Amazon, which I find strange. I've made the most money on Amazon, but someone actually bought a full album. They're not streaming it. They bought the album. They downloaded the MP3 files of Dead Set Ambient, which is actually one of my favorite albums of mine, but I was very very pleased when I saw that. So if you're curious, much in the way that my short stories that sell for 99 cents and my other books that sell for 99 cents, I only get 35 cents a pop for those. Um, I believe the album was sold for 9.99 on iTunes or Amazon. And I only got $4 and change for that. So 
interesting return, but it's more money than I ever expected to make for my music, especially since until last year, I never charged money for my music. And I still technically don't, but you can buy it if you want. So I think that's that's awesome. It, it really tickles me. I think it would have tickled me at age 15 when I released my first album. And yeah, here we are in 2022. drinking my sparkling water out of my Yeti. So I don't have much context to give you for Suter. And I read it in 2019 to and fro from uh, South Carolina when I was visiting my dad for Christmas right before the pandemic, obviously. I haven't seen him since, but I really enjoyed this book. And uh, I don't really have much to say about it other than I know that on the offset, it seems like it's just about a baseball player in a slump, but it gets more drastic and developed than that. All of his novels really take turns in ways that you wouldn't expect. I mean, was it Compass? It was the book Before the Trees that came out recently that was really good. And allegedly, it has three different endings depending on what copy of the book you buy. I think it was called Telephone. Uh, that book started out as kind of a drama, and then it escalated into uh, almost an uh, like a one-man amateur espionage sort of thing. It was crazy. So, other than that, it, it was probably an influence on Birch, now that I think about it. If you haven't read my new novel, Birch, go do it. So... I'm just going to get into chapter one. We've already gotten six minutes into the podcast, and I'm I'm over it. So, I'm up at the plate in the top of the ninth, and the first pitch is, I grant you, an honest-to-God textbook strike, and the fat umpire's backwards dance. In that turn to the right, he manages, don't offend me at all. And then the second pitch comes whistling in way inside, and I hear that fat man in blue yell, strike? And I turn to catch the tail end of the routine, and I just can't believe it. So I flip the bat in my hand like a baton, as is my custom, and step up to him, face to face, and give him the questioning eye. There he is, right in front of me, behind that foam-filled apron, and he yells, Strike? That was way inside, I tell him. I could feel it on my pants. Strike? He repeats and lets out this little shit-eating grin. And I really want to hit him and tell myself not to and turn turn away. I'm dealing with what I think might be a sinus infection. It's not a cold. I don't feel sick. But I've been having issues with my ears popping because I've been blowing my nose so much. And yeah, you don't want to hear about that. Blind bastard, I say under my breath. And he says to me, If you can't, I cut him off. Why don't you go read up on the strike zone? He looks at me and yells, play ball. Then when I'm stepping into the box, he says, that's two, Suter. And I ignore him. The next pitch is so inside that the catcher leaves his perch to get it. And I know because I follow the ball all the way and don't even move my bat. But as sure as anything, that fat umpire does his Fred Astaire and calls another strike. So I'm out, and when I'm walking away, I mutter, why don't you just put on one of their uniforms? 
and I'm still holding the bat clenched in my fist when David Nix flies to center for third out. The pitcher finishes his warm-ups, and the ball gets passed all around, and fast Eddie Ramos is walking up to the plate swinging a bat with a lead donut on it. Lou Tyler, our manager, is yelling that we're up one run and that we should hold them. Three up, three down, he says. Three up, three down. Then he yells to me, Suter. And I turn to, to see him make like he's bunting with an invisible bat. Watch the bunt, he yells. Watch the bunt. It strikes me that he sometimes says things twice, and I imagine it's a fancy way of stuttering and heeding his words. I step down the third base line toward the batter. Thus far, we're getting a lot of baseball talk, but this book is not really all that much about baseball. But one of the things that I believe about Percival Everett is this is his first novel. And if you know him from his novel Erasure, you know that he likes to distance himself from certain labels. So in the 80s, a man writing a novel about a baseball player, and he's starting this out in a way that has a lot of technical baseball jive in it. So I believe that if someone to pick this up back then and not know who Percival Everett was, and I don't know if there was a picture of him on the back of the book. I'm reading this from my Kindle. I don't know that they would be able to tell what Percival Everett looked like, which I believe would please him. Now, we have no indication as to what this protagonist looks like. Suter. So, Yes, we will eventually find out that Suter is a black man. But at this point, we have no idea. And the reason why I'm bringing up race, other than the fact that Percival Everett is an author who happens to be a black man, is it comes to fruition in this novel in an interesting way. All of his novels that have some aspect of race in them, they don't just wham bam in your face with it they play with it his novel or two after this cutting lisa does not mention any of the characters races at all so that's something to keep in mind so i'm going to skip this part because you've heard enough of of all that so when i see lou tyler Turning the corner and heading down the aisle toward me, he comes and sits beside me, straddles the wooden chair, and pushes the brim of his cap up. We all have slumps, he says, and I'm pulling him on my socks, half listening to him, and he goes on, but you gotta break out of this one soon. I look over at him and I ask, did you see what they was calling strikes out there? So you had a bad call. A bad call? I suppose I really made that error out there, too. I look away from him and shake my head. Okay, a couple of bad calls. Jesus, I say. The truth of the matter is, Craig, that you have to straighten up and fly right. And he slaps me on the back and tells me to get dressed. I watch him walk away and then I slam the locker. Yeah, straighten up and fly right, I says to myself. Fly right. Having read this book to completion... To completion, I get this pun now, 
the idea of flying. Haha. Uh, we get to the airport and we're boarding the plane when Tuck McShane, the trainer, comes up to me. How's the leg? He wants to know. Ain't nothing wrong with my leg, I says, sitting down. He sits beside me. I thought you was favoring your left leg last night. No? I'm glad you're sitting by the window. He looks past me over the wing. It's common knowledge that old Tuck gets dizzy when he stands tippy-toed. Why do you st- what are you studying on so hard, he asks me. Don't worry, you'll pick up. You'll play a lot better once you relax. You ought to try some breathing exercises. He inhales deeply and lets it out. I look back out the window and watch the flaps as we take off and I see a bird. And I, be- I begin to wish I could fly up high and all without the aid of a machine. The flying comes into play. This is something that I can use in my class and talk to my students about because I try to break down text in a way that they can start to see how an- 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 analysis works. I can speak specifically critical analysis for their essays. And I had a student, an older one, a non-traditional student, asked me after class Wednesday, how do you, other than the fact that you went to school for so long and you're trained in this, how did you come to understand how to um, basically analyze and uh, dissect this stuff? And I tried to give her an example Uh, the first thing that came to mind because we had talked about toxic masculinity in class I was telling her about uh, how I decided to write about two and a half men and I saw the two different paradigms and archetypes and la-di-da and the two characters and that is what brought me to toxic masculinity which was the entire reason why I was teaching it in that class that day but I said you're going to notice symbols and repetitive themes and the things that you read or the things that you watch and you can put them together and you can uh it's sort of like word analysis where one thing makes you think of another thing and it's all about how you interpret things and the evidence that you use from the text to support that and you can't just quote something and say there that's my evidence you have to analyze it and explain why And she was a little taken aback by that. But I said, don't worry. What we're doing in this class is building up to it. So as we're climbing out of the plane in Baltimore, old Tuck turns to me. It's your right leg, ain't it? Want me to take a look? Ain't nothing wrong with my leg, I says. We check into the hotel and David Nix and I go to our room. While David is in the bathroom, I call my wife and she's sounding a little down. So I ask her what's wrong. Peter came home the other day and he's been fighting, she tells me. He's a seven-year-old boy, honey, I says. They fight sometimes. You don't understand. This is the third time this week. Maybe somebody's picking on him. He's got to stand up for himself. He says the boys at day camp tease him about you, the way you've been playing. I hear this and I don't know what to say. Craig? What's he doing in that schoolyard anyway? It's summer. He should be out playing in the grass. Listen, I've got to go. David wants the phone. Okay, I love you. Me too. Another thing that I'm just going to go ahead and spoil for you is I'm pretty sure that other than being in a slump as a baseball player and it affecting his, his life to the point where his son is being bullied for it, 
Uh, he's also impotent during this time, so he's not able to get it up and perform in the bedroom, and that also affects him. So we're seeing glimmers of, you know, weakening traditional masculinity here. I go out and get drunk enough to embarrass a few dead relatives. I'm still drinking and I'm feeling pretty bad seeing as we just drop three straight to Boston and this fella recognizes me. Ain't you Craig Suter? I nod. I don't even look at him. Just keep my eyes on the bar and nod. He starts to laugh and talk about how we got our butts whipped, and I just keep looking at the bar, nodding. Then he says, If you was out of the lineup, Seattle might win a few. He still ain't got to me, and I'm still nodding. He sort of calls one of his buddies over, and they're standing over the other side of me, and the first fella says, Black boys ain't got no business in baseball, no way. And there we have it, folks. We have now revealed the race of our protagonist, and we're several pages into the book, so... As Percival Everett said in an interview years ago, it used to be that if your protagonist was not picking their afro by page 20, people assumed that they were white. So, in a very interesting way, without him just telling you, hey, this guy's black, another character has called this character's race out. See, up until this point, no one else felt the need to say anything except for this racist guy in a bar. I gotta take, take a little sip of water. Well, at this, I turn and look at him, and the next thing I know, I'm coming into an alley with my face in some garbage. I get up and make my way to the hotel. I sure as hell hope that craziness ain't passed from from parents to children by the way of the blood. I say this because my mother was out and out raving insane. When I was 10 and my brother Martin was 12, my folks called the two of us into the kitchen. It was one of those hot North Carolina summer days when even the flies are moving slow. Daddy was moving at the table in his underwear and Ma was wearing her cloth coat with the dog fur around the collar. Sweat was dripping off Mama's face and Martin and I moved slowly to our chairs at the table. There was a great big glass of iced tea in Daddy's left hand and a handkerchief in his right. Sit down, boys, he says. We were already sitting and we looked at him puzzled like, Oh, he said and gulped down some tea. Boys, he stopped. Ma cleared her throat and sat up. A bead of sweat was hanging off the tip of her nose. Your father has something he wants to tell you. We looked back at Daddy. Daddy's eyes were locked on Ma and then sort of snapped to and said, Boys, your mother's crazy. That was the first time I've done a almost 20-minute track without having to stop. So, the thing about this novel is that it's telling two different stories in a sense because... He's having flashbacks to his mother's mental decline and also his relationship with a traveling jazz musician as Souter in the present time is trying to navigate his relationship with his family and also trying to kind of get out of the slump and the adventures that ensue as a result of that. But this whole conceit of his mother being crazy in this scene here you have to remember so Souter is probably in his 30s 
when this is taking place and uh, in the 80s, if he was in his 30s, let's see, 70s is 20s, 60s is teens. So it would have been the late late 50s, early 60s when this flashback is taking place. And mental health at that time was, at least mental health awareness and treatment was not tremendous. I was just talking to my class about this because we were talking about Bukowski and I asked, after World War II, what do you think treatment for mental health issues were like? Because they didn't have, you know, medications like they do today. And someone said they just admitted them to a mental hospital, which is often what they did. But another way that people were dealing with it was alcohol. So I'm just going to get back into this book and I hope you're enjoying hearing me read because I'm trying to figure this out myself because I haven't read this in a couple of years. Martin and I just sat there at the table staring at each other. We stared at each other for a long good while and then Ma got up and walked out into the yard. Daddy rubbed his handkerchief across his forehead. Maybe it's the heat, Daddy said. Why's she wearing that coat? I asked. Daddy looked at me and wiped the back of his neck. She's crazy, Craig. You're a doctor, Daddy, Martin said. Fix her. I can't help her, Daddy said, and got up and walked to the screen door. He looked out into the yard at Ma. She was now hoeing up the, in the garden. Ain't nothing I can do. He's, he stood there leaning against the door frame, drinking his tea and wiping his face and neck. Why is she wearing that coat? I asked again. Maybe it's the heat, Daddy said, eyes fixed on Ma. He turned to my brother and me. He picked up the newspaper off the counter and walked out of the kitchen. What do you think, Martin asked. I'm only ten years old. Martin got up and walked over to the door and stared through the screen at Ma. I started crying. Hush that noise up, Martin said. Our mama's crazy, I cried. He just looked back out in the yard at her and I heard him sniff a little. But I didn't say anything. Martin and I went down to the pond and threw rocks at the ducks. Martin hit one of the birds in the head and it flapped away screaming. There's another allusion to the ending. Maybe we could hit her in the head and knock some sense into her, Martin said. You think so? How the hell should I know? Martin looked up at the telephone lines and stared at the sparrows. Go get my BB gun. I don't want to. Just get it. I ran back home and when I walked into Martin and Maya's room I found Ma sitting on Martin's bed looking at the girly magazines that he kept hidden between the mattress and the box spring. I stopped in my tracks. Come here, Craggy, she said, patting a spot on the bed beside her. I walked over and sat down. I was scared. She was crazy. She put her arm around me and pulled me close and with her free hand grabbed the meat of my cheek. You're a good boy, Craggy. I tried to get up, but she pulled me down. I gotta take Martin his BB gun. You see this, she asked, showing me a couple of pages stuck together. You see this? Your brother is a bad boy. She dropped the magazine on the floor. Just being so close to her coat was making me hot and sweaty and itchy. Why are you wearing that coat, Ma? I'm not wearing a coat, silly. She looked at me and pulled her mouth tight. It's called masturbation. I just looked at her. 
what he does with these pictures. She moved her fist up and down over her lap. Don't you ever do that. You'll go blind. I started to get up and she pulled me back. She started unbuttoning my shirt and I reached up and folded my arms over my chest. I want you to take a bath, she said. It's the afternoon, I complained. Take your clothes off, she screamed through her her teeth. Her eyes had a real strange sparkle. Now, I undressed. She was crazy. She pulled me by the hand into the bathroom. Get in the tub. I stepped into the tub. Sit down. I sat down and she began to pull a dry washcloth over my body. Ma, I said, there ain't no water. The water is not too hot, she screamed, and then she stood up. The water is not too hot, she walked out. The only thing about this is that we're not seeing anything that takes place before that would indicate that his mother is going crazy. We just have this scene that introduces her as being crazy because her uh, husband explains to the children, very matter-of-factly, your ma's crazy. And, you know, I trust Percival Everett as an author taking us on a journey, but um, it may seem strange to people that we're being introduced to her as she's, you know, literally crazy instead of the process leading up to it, but who cares? So we're in chapter two. At noon the next day, I'm up and just out of the shower and buttoning my shirt when Lou Taylor comes in. Don't you ever knock, I ask him. Never, he says, looking around the room. Where's Nick's? Shower. How's the leg? I look at him, puzzled, and sit on the bed and start pulling on my socks. Ain't nothing wrong with my leg. But Tuck said, no, never mind. How'd you sleep? Fine, I tell him. Feel okay? God damn it, Kendall. I feel fine. Big game today, he says, and pushes a stogie into his face. We've got to get back on the right track. You hear me? The right track. David comes out of the bathroom with a towel wrapped around him and says hello to Lou. Lou pulls his cigar out and nods a hello, and then he turns back to me. Get your mind on the game, and he turns to David. Nix, you keep an eye on him. Don't let him think about nothing but baseball. How the hell am I supposed to do that, David asks, pulls on his pants. I don't give a shit, just do it. Lou walks to the door, and as he's leaving, he says, The bus leaves at five. I watch the door close behind him. Hey, don't worry, says David. You'll break out of it. We have breakfast, watch some TV, and head for the stadium. We're in the clubhouse, and Butch Backman, the catcher, walks over to me. I hope you play good today, he says in that dumb voice of his. I hope I play good too, I says, mocking the sound of his voice. Butch stares at me for a long second, and then walks away. Lighten up, David says to me. I look at David, and I know he's right, so I walk over to Butch and apologize. Butch tilts his head and looks at me through those slits he calls eyes. Jesus Christ. I'm just a little uptight, I I say. You know, I can read sometimes. Yeah, he says, putting his finger in my face. I might not be as smart as you, and maybe I didn't go to college, but I know enough to give 100% on the field, he slams his locker and leaves the room. It's not a real hot night, but I'm sweating before the game starts. As I'm standing by the dugout, some kid leans out over the railing and hands me a program and a pen. He wants me to pass it to David Nix.
the first inning ends scoreless and hitless, and our cleanup man, Pete Turner, flies out in the second. So I'm up, and I look at the board, and there's my batting average staring me in, staring me in the face. 198, first time ever under 200. Before I know it, I've got two strikes on me. The third pitch comes, blowing in, and I swing and hit nothing, but the catcher muffs the ball. He didn't find the handle, so I'm on base. David's at the plate, and I'm taking a short lead towards second, and I'm thinking about my slump and, like, something out of a dark room, and the pitcher makes a move to first, and I die for the bag. I'm out. I brush the dirt out of my clothes and walk back to the dugout, shaking my head. I sit down behind old Tuck McShane. So, you gonna let me wrap that leg for you? Now I'm beginning to think that something is wrong with my leg, and I nod. Tuck pulls up my right, my pant leg and wraps my right leg. What the fuck? He wraps it pretty tight, and I can't bend my leg or straighten it out completely. It's a little tight. No, it's fine, he says. We're taking the field again, and I'm limping. I was not limping before. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes when you try to treat something, it feels like it gets worse. It's like whenever I take cough medicine, I feel worse. I don't have a cough. I just have a shit ton of nasal bullshit going on. and I've been, I haven't gargled with salt water. I don't think I did yesterday, and I haven't done it today. But I've been gargling with Listerine to help kill any germs and um, been drinking a lot of hot tea and sucking on way too many Ricolas. I've been trying to conserve my fisherman's friends because I don't have very many, even though I have two bags. This is entertaining podcasting, I know. In the tail end of the seventh, Baltimore has men on first and third. We don't give a fuck about this baseball shit. Holy shit. Let me skip ahead, y'all. It was Sunday right after church, and Martin and I were out by the pond, still dressed in our powder blue suits. Martin was trying to pick birds off the telephone line, and I was watching tadpoles. You know, I said, Ma didn't seem so crazy this morning. Martin looked away from his target at me. Asking everybody to move out of the first three rows was pretty crazy. I looked at my reflection in the pond and thought about Ma. Got it, said Martin. He started off toward his kill, and I followed him. We stood over the sparrow and looked at the little red spot on his head. Got him in the head. I looked at Martin's face. We didn't say anything else. We just walked back to the house. We walked through the back door and in the kitchen. All of Martin's dirty magazines were on the table and opened to the fold-out pictures. Not again, Martin sighed. You filthy boy, Ma pulled her hair wet from perspiration out of her face. You pull on yourself. Martin turned and walked out. Don't you leave this house. Martin stopped and turned around. Ma walked to me and put her arm around me. Why can't you be a good boy like Craig? Martin sighed again. Oh, Martin, you're just like your father. He's out now, up to no good. The mighty Dr. Souter. He says he's got to go see if Sarah Harris is about to have her baby. But I know better. He's with Luann Naramore from down at the drugstore. That's not true, Martin said. Why can't you be a good boy like Craig here? Martin looked at me. 
real hard like. His lower lip was pushed out slightly and his cheeks were puffed. He turned and walked out. That's that's the thing. Parents and grandparents don't realize that when they compare people, their siblings or cousins, that all they're doing is creating resentment towards the person that they're trying to get the other person to be like. So, you know, I... I grew up in a very complicated situation. So my father, his second wife, was pregnant before they got married, and not with his baby, but with his brother's baby. So my stepsister was also my cousin. And when I got older, my father tried to explain it by saying he thought he was doing the right thing by marrying that woman who was very unkind to me. And has such a serious alcohol addiction that she's aged about, you know, 30 years when she's only in her, well, I guess now she's in her 50s. But, you know, people said that when she was in her 30s and 40s, she looked like she was 60. All because of the alcohol. But she, you know, I saw her drink when she was pregnant too, so that was great. But other than that... Um, that stepsister of mine, who I'm friends with on Facebook, we don't talk though, and if she ever hears this, hi, but, you know, my experience is, is going to be unique from hers to some degree, because for one thing, she actually lived with my dad longer than I did, I'm pretty sure, because I think that that marriage lasted a little bit longer than his marriage to my mother. I was three when they got divorced, so he was the the father in her life, and you know, but her mother did not see me as a, a son. So whenever I'd go over there, there were many many weekends I asked to not go because I just wanted to stay at home with my mother. But you know, to avoid getting yelled at by my father, my mother would often just make me go. So when I got there, it was just always a shock to the senses because it was the complete opposite of my house. And uh, on top of that, I always had to be careful about what I did or what I said because if I did something that offended my stepsister... Uh, it would offend my stepmother or vice versa sometimes. But, you know, there was a lot of shit that went on that I didn't appreciate. And on top of that, when I'd come home and I'd be around my grandmother on whenever, you know, we'd go out to eat or something. You know, she'd, she'd complain about my hair or complain about the way that I want to dress. Why can't you be more like your cousin Thomas? Don't you want to have hair like your cousin Thomas? She would sometimes call me Thomas. I mean, people don't realize that creating these resentments is not in anyone's best interest. She hugged me tighter and I tried to pull away. I fell back into the floor. I pulled myself up by grabbing the table and I knocked some magazines to the floor. Ma got down on her knees and started pulling them together. 
As I stood over looking at the bald spot on the top of her head where she tried to shave, I thought about what Martin had said about knocking some sense into her. I picked up a china bowl from the dish rack and broke it over her head. She fell on her face. I let out a scream. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Martin came running in and saw Mon stretched out on the floor. What happened? I broke a bowl over. Why did my Kindle just shut off? What the fuck? This happened last episode. Fuck you, Jeff Bezos. I broke a bowl over her head. Martin kneeled down and picked up Ma's head and let it drop. He closed his eyes for a second. You can't tell anyone. What do you mean? You can't tell anyone you hit her. I have to tell Daddy. No. Well, just say she passed out. Just like that. Do you hear me? I don't know, Martin. Look here, he pointed at Ma. She's out cold, maybe dead. Do you want to go to jail? No. Then what are you going to tell Daddy? She passed out. Just like that. She's not dead, is she? Briefly, I want to get into some toxic masculinity talk. So, the thing about toxic masculinity is that just because you're successful is not an indication of a successful form of masculinity. Um, The whole concept and conceit of looking at gender is that our ideas of what masculinity or femininity should be are just cultural norms and societal constructs. So I asked my students, why don't men wear dresses? Why do I dress the way that I do? You know, men used to wear kilts, you know, and I got a lot of different answers that I don't know that they quite got where I, what I was going for because they rejected the idea of a man wearing a dress. They rejected the idea of a man in America wearing a kilt. Um, these ideals are ingrained in people at a very young age. So Craig Suter was before this took place, before this novel takes place, he was a successful pro baseball player. I mean, you have to be a very good baseball player to be able to be on a professional team, correct? So his struggle is not only representative of a physical struggle, it's indicative of a mental struggle. And the parallel between him and his mother here is very important to understanding that. And it affects him sexually as well, which is another indicator of a failure as a man. So we're seeing here that he had this intense relationship with his mother where she actually idealized him to his older brother. And that not only has an effect on both of them, but since we're, we're focusing on Craig, we have to consider, well, this hyping him up, this showing him that she loves him, even if she's crazy, this is directly correlated with the fact that he would even pursue a professional sport. His brother is, I believe, a dentist. So his brother went a very practical route to be successful, but Craig Suter had to undergo a lot of physical training and nights out playing ball and eventually went to college. Things that are also very impressive 
for the fact that he's a black man. Um, it, it was very difficult in the you know 70s and 80s for uh, black men to get that kind of education. But he, as a result of his father being a doctor, he also comes from a, a line of privilege to an extent. But where toxic masculinity comes in is the societal expectations of this man and how he's failing. And that is resulting in him being told that he's, he's failing by not only his teammates, but by his wife and the fact that his son is being bullied. And these reflections back to his mother are showing, well, the whole, the whole reason why he's tried to build this image up and be a professional baseball player is in direct correlation to the fact that he needed to escape his mother. He needed to prove to himself that he wouldn't be like her. He also had uh, a, something to live up to because his mother kept saying that he was perfect or a good boy. Martin and I were standing at the foot of the bed looking at Ma and Daddy was standing on her right holding her hand. The curtains were open and the hospital room was flooded with light and it kind of made Ma look like she had a halo. The old lady in the bed on the other side of the room divider was moaning something awful. Oh, shut up, you old hag, my mother yelled. Okay, dear, settle down, Daddy said. Ma looked down at her body and over her feet at me. Come here, Craggy. She held up her left hand. I walked over to her left side and took her hand. The sun was hot on my back through the window. I looked closely at the wrapping on her head. Craggy. Yeah, Ma. She looked at Martin and then looked then at Daddy. I'd like to be alone with Craig. Her eyes moved again to me. Daddy and Martin left the room and I watched the big door swing slowly closed. Craggy, Ma said. You're a good boy. You've got to be careful in life. Don't trust anyone. Trust not a living soul and walk cautiously among the dead. Yes, Ma. She narrowed her eyes to slits and I got scared. You know, your daddy's been a bad boy. He's been running around with that Luann Naramore down at the drugstore. No, Ma. She sat up and leaned towards me. The sun had made me hot and sticky, so I was scared and uncomfortable. He is, and I don't want to hear another word out of you about it. Your daddy's running around, and we're going to catch him. You and me. You hear me? I nodded. Daddy pushed his head into the room. Craig, we're about to go. Get out! Ma screamed. Dad's head disappeared. Okay, Craggy. She pulled me down and kissed my forehead. Go on, but remember what we talked about. She stroked my face. I nodded and turned and started out. Craggy. She called me back. I love you the most. You were a breach baby. You were difficult. I almost died having you. That's why I love you the most. You and me. We're going to catch the two of them in the act. Your father and that Luann Naramore. She fell back onto her pillow. From down at the drugstore. I started out again. Psst. Called the old lady in the other bed. I stopped and looked at her. Come here, little boy. I walked slowly towards her and looked into her face, which was contorted with pain. Look around and see if you can find my pills. 
They're yellow for the pain. Huh? Your mother took my pills and hid them. I don't know why, but she did. And now the nurse won't give me any more. The pain is real bad. Ma snatched the divider back and yelled, Go home, Craig! I ran out into the hallway. Daddy looked at me and said, She is still your mother. Ma spent one night in the hospital and Martin and I waited in the living room for Daddy to bring her home the next day. Daddy thinks it might be the heat, Martin says, that's got Ma acting this way. Martin, I'm scared. Why should you be scared? She likes you. I'm the one who should be scared. See, it's creating a division between the two siblings. Do you think Daddy's running around with Luann Naramore? Martin thought. I don't know. I don't think so. The front screen door pushed open and Ma and Daddy walked in. Ma didn't say anything. She just walked past us and into her bedroom. She came out wearing her coat. Dinner, she said. Dinner, dinner. She walked into the kitchen. My wife Thelma is waiting on me when we land in Seattle, but the kid ain't with her. I walked to Thelma and gave her a big hug and pulled back to take a look at her. I put my arm around her and we're walking out of the terminal. I ask where little Peter is. He's at my mother's house, she says. How come? It's late. He's got camp tomorrow. I nod and pull her closer. Besides, I thought it would be nice if we were all alone tonight. We drive home and enter the house. I throw my bag down and turn to Thelma and grab her and give her a big kiss. She takes my hand and leads me into the bedroom. Turns out. I can't perform. It's a problem I've been having and I don't know what to say. Still, Thelma says and glares at me for a second. That's just terrific. Please. I'm tired of being patient, Craig. She rolls over and sighs. I fall asleep and wake up to all this noise and turn on the light to find Thelma pedaling on her exercise bicycle. I look at the clock. It's 3.30 in the morning. She doesn't pay me any mind. She's just pedal faster. Her head is moving back and forth and perspiration is streaming down the sides of her face. Come to bed. She stops pedaling. Is it your leg? Does it hurt? I shake my head. She starts pedaling again. I wrap my head in the pillows and try to block out the sound. But it ain't no use. And now she's singing. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows, but... I get out of bed and go to the kitchen to look for something to eat. I find some ham in the refrigerator and make me a sandwich. When I finish my sandwich and down a glass of milk, my eyes become hard to keep open. I put my elbows on the table and rest my head in my hands, and that's the way I wake up four hours later. Thelma comes in and finds a foal on the counter. You didn't eat the ham, did you? Yeah, I did. I was meaning to throw that out. It was spoiled. I put my face back into my hands. I get up and walk out of the kitchen, through the bedroom and into the bathroom. I stand in the shower for a long time with the water pounding on my back. Things are bad. I can't make love to my wife. I can't run bases. I can't get a hit if they was pitching me basketballs underhanded. And my kid hates me. Top it off, I got a bum leg that don't hurt. I'm sitting in the kitchen reading the paper and Thelma slides a 
plate of breakfast in front of me. I'm still thinking about the spoiled ham I got into and look up at Thelma. Turning down this meal would be a grave error. I eat and read in the paper how I ain't the only person in the world concerned with my slump. The headline of the sports page reads, Mariners seek to plug hole in Suter's glove. And below that, sow seeds of M's misery. I decide to skip the off-day practice, Lou is called. I move into the den and watch some television. I'm on my third soap opera when Thelma calls me into the bedroom. She kisses me, and I pull away, shaking my head. It ain't that I can't get erect. I, I can't stay that way. You don't love me anymore, she says. This sort of thing happens all the time. Okay, I'm going to talk about this because I'm fucking over society. I'm over our culture, and I'm over the assumptions that men and women make about each other. So there's a lot that women don't know about men, and there's a lot that men don't know about women physically, biologically, etc. And one of the things that they don't even educate boys about are their erections in school. Hopefully you're not getting erections in school. So I, back in 2014, yeah. So I just broken up with my girlfriend eight years and it's, I, I, I shouldn't be ashamed to talk about this, but it's, it's hard to kind of phrase it correctly, but I, we're talking this is in context with the book okay so i i am revealing a lot about myself here and if you're not uh, prepared to hear about it then whoop-de-doo but i was i was very young i'm still very young i'm only 30 but you know i was 22 and I'd, i'd only been with the same girl my whole life at that point you know I'd been with her for eight years and you know, I, I'd always had this thing where I, I lasted a really long time. Some men, when they're in bed, they, they don't last very long or some people have the opposite issue of me where they have premature ejaculation. And there have just been plenty of times where I just don't ejaculate during sex and you're sitting there in your car and you're, office on your run listening to me talk about this and you're wondering how the hell did we get to this we're talking about impudence here and the the different ways that our penises affect us as men okay and no one should be ashamed to talk about it because often what is the case is psychological and in my case it was not only psychological, I also had a huge issue with my blood pressure because of everything I was going through, which went back to my mental state. So I was incredibly depressed, incredibly suicidal a lot that year. And, you know, there were plenty of times where I just wasn't interested in sex at all. But, um, you know, after I broke up with my girlfriend, Two weeks later, I was trying to start a new relationship because I was stupid. And it wasn't a case where I couldn't get an erection. It was just that, for one thing, uh, I'm going to put the blame on me for the sake of just being polite to the other person that was involved in this relationship that was very brief. But um, 
I would lose my erection after a while. And I kind of like, I was in my head the whole time. This was the second person I was having sex with in my entire life. And I still felt like I was kind of cheating on my girlfriend that I'd just broken up with. And then on top of that, um, you know, the blood pressure, the depression, everything that was going into it. And I just, I, 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 there were two women that I was involved with after this eight year relationship where I just could not finish. And they, they had a great time. You know, I, I, I try to make sure that when I'm intimate with a woman that she has a good time, that she gets off, you know, however I have to do it. But, you know, it, it creates a strain when, you know, they feel that they can't get you off. They think that there's something wrong with them, even though you tell them that there's nothing wrong with them. Or they suggest that something's wrong with you, which, yeah, kind of, but it's not a case where as one, as the second girl that I'd been with suggested that I take Viagra at age 22, that is for men who can't get erections. Um, this was not the issue. The issue was mental and everything. And one of the reasons why I've been really compatible with my wife is, you know, sexual because I'm able to, to, you know, not only am I into her physically, I am in a better state mentally than I was then. And I'm going to tell you something else that a lot of people won't tell you about male sexuality and everything is that we need breaks sometimes during sex. So if I'm starting to like lose my, my steam, um, I will get off rest for a minute and then get back into it. It's not a fucking marathon. Okay. And what this man's going through, it's not helping his mental state that his wife is, is, and they're about to have a conversation that is very indicative of this sort of issue. So I move into the den and watch some, I already read that. You don't love me anymore. She says this sort of thing happens all the time. She pulls the tissue from the box in her nightstand and wipes the tears from her eyes. It doesn't have anything to do with you. She just stares at me. Thelma, try to understand. I'm in a terrible slump. I can't hit. I can't feel it. It's eating at me. I can't get my mind off of it. I look in her eyes. I still love you. Then show me. There's more to love than just sex. Original. I promise this won't last very long, Thelma. You're only 32. More tears. So? So does this this mean? No. It's a passing thing. I promise. It's just, I just need to get my head together. See, this is this is an issue. And we need to talk about it. Where it's not just... And this is the result of toxic masculinity as well. The effects of the patriarchy on men and the things that men tell women what they should expect out of men and this misunderstanding, this this communication, this communication breakdown where you need to understand we are just like you in that we need arousal, but we also need something to keep us aroused. And sometimes if there's something wrong, mentally or physically we can't always maintain that it does nothing to do with the person involved on the other end i mean sometimes it does sure 
but I'm trying to be polite here. And what she's doing to him is not helping him. Putting pressure on him is not going to help him. And I'm pretty sure that she ends up having an affair with someone. I can't quite remember, but I understand that, that people have needs sexually and they need to fulfill them. But to cheat on your partner when they're experiencing this is not only going to hurt them. It's going to hurt them further and it's going to stall their healing process. We've gotten three chapters into this. So I think that we're in a good place to stop since we're almost an hour into the podcast. And uh, I've already gone into this personal story that I may regret one day because someone's going to probably bring it up and make fun of me for it because that's what people do. I don't really give a shit, though, honestly. I am a married man. Such things shouldn't bother me, and they don't bother me because no one should be concerned about my sexuality but me. If only everyone felt that way. Realistically speaking, I think that if more men are open with, you know, this sort of thing, this sort of topic like this book, then maybe it would create a conversation, an open space, uh, a safe space even, where we could discuss this issue with our sexuality that really isn't much of an issue uh, because it shouldn't be an issue. It should be accepted because we're human feeling creatures and frankly, I'm going to, you know, it, it, it is like what Souter said to his wife, there's more to love than sex. And uh, it's important. It's an important aspect of marriage. I can tell you that. However, what more people need to realize is that um, in some sense it's overrated. Um, but I've always thought of myself as having kind of a, like, a, a light, a low, self, uh, whoa, uh, low sex drive. You can tell I've been talking for an hour. And uh, I'm not afraid to admit that. You know, I just, I have other things that I'm interested in. I'm not obsessed with sex the way other people are. I don't make it a huge part of my personality. And uh, I don't know. I, as someone who's also kind of gone through uh, sexual abuse, uh, yes, I was on the receiving end of that. Um, it's also something that, you know, I've tried to distance myself from in that sense. And I, I've heard people say that people who have undergone, uh, sexual abuse in the past, uh, they either have one or two reactions where they're hypersexual or they have a low sex drive. And I would definitely fall more on that side of the spectrum. So, uh, I, my voice is not breaking because I'm getting emotional. It's because I'm trying to recover from this fucking, uh, whatever this is, sinus infection or something. I feel fine right now, though. Um, this has been Patrick Attaway with Demise of the Pat, of, of the Patrick, Demise of the Patrick. Yes, absolutely. Uh, happy reading, happy fucking life. Go read my books. Bye.